0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. For this episode, we talk about the busy week in Westminster and the chances that we are heading for another lockdown in the UK, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Sophie Traherne, UK Government Relations Expert, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer.
1: Hello. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. And again, well, seems maybe a bit more by luck than judgment. We've managed to to get Sophie Traherne lined up, the perfect guest for the current news cycle. Sophie is our authoritative presence to help cover what's been, well, frankly, a, a, a... Amazing couple of weeks out of Westminster. We've also got Will back to try and cover what it all means with respect to the UK economy and the capital markets. So Will, let's start with you. In the context of all these changes in policy that we've seen in the UK, obviously we've seen a bit of a surge in infection rates here. Um, how does that compare to the previous surge in the first half of the year?
2: Hello Nikki, hello Sophie. Yes, it is. Um, it's interesting because although we're seeing recorded infections around Europe at comparable levels to earlier than the year, uh, and in some cases, in some cases exceeding those levels, so far, um, and that's an important caveat here, the levels of hospital admissions and fatalities are a, a fraction of what we uh, we saw back then. So, mm-hmm. in the UK, the seven-day average for COVID-related hospital admissions up to September the sixteenth um, was one hundred and eighty-seven per day. And that compares to a comparable figure for the week to the 1st of April, which is really kind of the, the first half peak. That was 3,100 admissions um, a day. Now, like I say, it's early days. The UK surge yeah. started towards the end of August. And we're generally told to assume a lag of kind of two to three weeks before we see associated rises in hospitalisation and tragically um, you know, death. However, um, I think what we can say is if we look at the rate of tests, coming back positive, the rate of tests coming back positive, it is that we are seeing, you know, that quite low rate, that quite low proportion, suggests that we are seeing a lot more of this wave of infections than we saw in the first half of the year. And that, to some extent, helps explain the lower apparent fatality rate alongside, uh, you know, the, the improvements that we've talked about in kind of the understanding of the disease and the treatment of the disease and, and so on and so on.
1: He is hoping, hey, so, so Sophie, mm-hmm. that then led to the statements from the government's scientific advisors, and and then indeed, we heard from the Prime Minister himself. Can you share with with the listeners the sort of key points and, and some of the reaction that you saw and heard?
0: Yes, of course. So it has certainly been a busy week in Westminster. As you said, we had the government's Chief Scientific Advisor and Chief Medical Officer giving a briefing on Monday about the increase of of COVID cases in England, which which Will's just outlined. And uh, this was closely followed by a statement from the Prime Minister to the House of Commons on what the government's response is uh, with new COVID restrictions coming into force. And I guess just to say the new measures the Prime Minister announced this week apply to England only. Whilst the devolved nations, they have announced quite similar measures, there are slight differences in their approach. So just for example, Nicola Sturgeon announced measures kind of limiting household gatherings in Scotland, which are not the same as England and Wales, so slight variations across the UK. But in terms of the top lines from the UK government, essentially people should work from home if they can. Uh, there's now a 10pm curfew on pubs, bars, and restaurants. Uh, some tighter rules on face coverings, uh, and the current rule of six uh, is being tightened. So where there are exemptions for for things like weddings, those those numbers are being reduced. And the the sort of the bit that got quite a bit of pickup in the media was his suggestion that unless the UK makes progress with a vaccine and mass testing, we should assume that these measures will remain in place for around six months. So so that that got quite a few headlines. In terms of the political reaction to this, well, Labour, who have been hosting their virtual party conference this week, it is party conference season, have actually been, you know, they've been fairly clear that, you know, they support the further restrictions to control the virus. They, they don't want to play... Politics will be seen to play politics with the virus at such a delicate time, although they are obviously the opposition party. Sir Keir Starmer has has voiced his criticisms of the government's approach, um, particularly on things like testing. But the prime minister is actually having some difficulty from his own backbenchers. There are a growing number of Conservative MPs who want Parliament to have a greater say over government restrictions. And an amendment's actually been put down by a Tory MP called uh, Sir Graham Brady, which has so far got a bit of support from, I think it's around 40 Tory MPs. And this would essentially prevent ministers from imposing new restrictions without the consent of Parliament. I mean, just to say look, there's a lot to play out, of course, with, with all this, and we'll see where this amendment ends up. But imposing restrictions at this stage uh, as we move into the winter was always going to be quite, quite tough for the government to, to do with, without some, some sort of backlash.
1: And Will, what are the lessons from the continent here? You know, it seems equally the growth of rate of infection now seems to be slowing a bit in Spain and France from, from the earlier peaks. What what are you seeing?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, Nikki, the Spain and France are definitely a bit further into this surge than we are in the UK. Mm. So Spain was really taking off in terms of case count terms in July and France a bit earlier in August. If you look at the, kind of the charts in terms of measured infections, captured infections, um, they are both still seeing rising cases. However, that rate of growth, as you rightly pointed out, um, seems to have slowed at the moment. So, French cases last I saw are now doubling every three weeks, and Spain every uh, Spanish cases every seven. So, so not ideal, far from it. However, the message I think many are taking from this is that it is possible to flatten the curve uh, without resorting to the full lockdown that we saw in the first half of the year. We all know a bit more about um, the importance of, you know, masks now. Testing capacity is allowing us to see a lot more of the pandemic, uh, which is obviously vital, but also more targeted restrictions on social activity have, have been seen to work and that's, you know, not just in Europe but but around the world.
1: Yeah, but I mean I guess even so that the, the the concern that you can see building is that the the chances of a return to full lockdown with with everything that that means, both you know, in people's personal lives, but also their their ability to earn a living, etc. That chance of a full lockdown clearly feels that little bit higher now.
2: Yeah, I think I I, I think that's probably right, Nikki. But I mean, I, I think you know, again, it's important to point out things, this is opinion, I guess, but I think things would have to get an awful lot worse before they become actually likely. Um, You know, healthcare capacity has been expanded, and and it's nowhere near being challenged so far. Again, very important caveat. And and we also, and, and as you rightly point out, you know, we also know a lot, lot more just about how economically damaging full lockdown is, and we know, to your point, that it is t- not a simple trade-off between financial and physical health. These two are intricately uh, enmeshed, intertwined. So, it's a, you know, it's an incredibly complicated policymaking backdrop, as uh, you know, Sophie just alluded to. You know, these are these are difficult times.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, let, let's move to the sort of latter part of the week and and the chancellor's announcement, Sophie. Can you just give us a few of those key takeaways, and and also, you know, given you've got your ear firmly close to the ground, how how are you perceiving the announcements having landed?
0: Following the prime minister's statement, attention sort of very quickly turned to what economic measures the chancellor is going to implement to support businesses to cope with these with these latest restrictions. Um, so the chancellor gave a, a statement out on Thursday. It was called the winter economy plan. Um, and it's all now being been published on the Treasury website. So you can go through the whole thing. But essentially, this is kind of the economic moment, the sort of mini budget that people have been talking about for a few months now. And, and the key announcements were very much on the, the future of the furlough scheme. Uh, which will come to an end in, in October. And the Chancellor announced a new scheme starting in November, which is called the Job Support Scheme. And this will give businesses who face kind of depressed demand uh, the option of keeping employees uh, in jobs on shorter hours rather than making them redundant. So, you know, this is all about jobs, uh, preventing large-scale unemployment as, as we get into the into the winter months. And then the Chancellor also made announcements on uh, a range of business support measures. So extending VAT cuts for hospitality and tourism, also extending the government loan schemes uh, until the end of November, uh, as well as supporting borrowers with their repayments through a pay as you grow scheme. So I suppose in general, although this winter economy plan was was very much about tackling the immediate challenges of the new COVID restrictions. It was also a bit about kind of looking ahead to next year and having a bit more of a long-term realistic view of the economy. The the Chancellor was quite clear in his statement. He said, I cannot save every business. I cannot save every job. No Chancellor could. And, And he also said that our economy is likely to undergo a more permanent adjustment and that we need to adapt. So, the announcement this week um you know it was about there was it was about supporting viable jobs with a cheaper scheme than the furlough scheme uh, as well as targeting particular sectors hardest hit like hospitality and tourism this of course hasn't stopped questions being raised about you know how these schemes will be paid for in the long term, and I'm, mm. sure, I'm sure that debate will rumble on for some time
1: in the, into next year. So, I mean, obviously, that extended support that you've just talked about, Sophie, is is, is good news in the context of of worries around, uh, obviously, individual worries, of course, whether whether it's employees or employers, but but also that outlook more generally for the impact on the economy. Will, from what Sophie's just described and everything you heard. How do you see that playing out as far as our outlook for for the economy?
2: Yeah, Nikki, I mean, I I think, again, I would preface any comments here with a reminder that it is an unbelievably challenging backdrop for policymakers. You see this acknowledged regularly in the news by sort of, you know, former occupants of the sort of these hot seats. You know, they never had anything in their Mm. time as challenging as this. So, I mean, yes, the the package is very welcome in the context of those, you know, that we've talked a lot about the sort of the fears about unemployment going forward. you know, looking at the criticisms that you know you're seeing about there at the moment, or, or at least the sort of worries that are out there. You know, many are comparing it to the kind of German equivalent and pointing out that it's significantly less generous. You know, so if you alluded to that from a number of aspects, most credible forecasters still expect, even after this announcement, a sharp rise in UK unemployment into the end of the year. According to, if you look at it, according to the data from the end of August from the Office of National Statistics, uh, you know, close to 11 percent of the workforce was still on furlough at that time, and 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 the feeling is that. After this announcement, still under this scheme, the announcement to lay off workers will be substantial. Because simply put, you know, the incentive is for employers to bring back a smaller number of workers full time as their effective hourly wage costs rise if, if, if using if using this scheme. So, you know, it, it's still going to be tricky. This is this is this is just you know I, I think it's it's going to be just an incredibly challenging time. And, uh, and, and like I say, that worry is still about you know what we're seeing under the cover of that furlough scheme. What are we going to see when it comes towards the end of the year?
1: I guess a, a lot there that we'll be keeping watch on week to week and no doubt seeing how it, how it uh, surfaces in reality. So Sophie, a mm-hmm. bit of a switcher subject, Brexit, uh, always take a bit of a breath, not not least because it, it goes quiet from time to time. And of course, then and then we have some quite dramatic, what feels like blow ups or, or dramas. So we seem to have got to a bit of a high there with respect to the government's internal market bill, furore. But that, again, got a little bit quieter recently. We, we know that, well, we believe that negotiations continue. And we're obviously getting closer and closer to the 15th of October deadline. What What's the latest that, that you're seeing and hearing on the bill and, and what, what are you anticipating? How will things play out over the next two to three weeks as we reach that deadline?
0: Yeah, so whilst COVID has uh, the headlines this week, I, I imagine that Brexit will be firmly back in the headlines next week because we've got the ninth round of negotiations kicking off on Monday. And you mentioned the Internal Market Bill, which obviously, as you said, made quite a few headlines last week because it included these clauses which would give ministers powers to essentially overall provisions of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which was all agreed as part of the withdrawal agreement last year. But actually, the government have managed to diffuse some of the domestic opposition to the bill in terms of placating Tory backbenchers who who weren't happy with the government being able to break uh, part of, the, of an internationally agreed treaty. So mm. they essentially agreed to an amendment which would give MPs a vote before ministers could go ahead and over, override the withdrawal agreement. And this is kind of a, a sort of parliamentary lock. And it is basically enough to get the Tory rebels on side And so the bill could now clear the Commons fairly unscathed. It does have to pass through the House of Lords, who could certainly delay the bill and make life quite difficult for the government. And we expect this process to start around mid-October, which uh, obviously coincides with uh, the October European Council meeting on the 15th, 16th of October, which should make things uh, interesting. And, you know, of course, the the EU are still critical of the bill and, and say that it has undermined trust in the negotiations. I I would say that despite the tension, there does still seem to be a way through and a deal is still possible. The remaining stumbling blocks continue to be Northern Ireland and state aid. But compromises, you know, they are there, they could be achieved and a deal could still be reached by mid-October. No one has walked away from the table just yet. So I guess in terms of key moments to look out for over the next few weeks, well, we've got that ninth round of negotiations starting on the 28th of September we then have that uh, 15th of October political deadline that, that Boris Johnson set himself and which coincides with with that European Council meeting. Uh, and before then, I suppose it, it's worth looking out for any kind of last minute high level meetings going in the diary between Boris Johnson and Commission President Ursula von der Leyen or perhaps the Irish Prime Minister or even someone like President Macron could be brought in to try and kind of broker that, that high level political compromise. As ever with Brexit, it could come down to the wire once more, uh, and if a deal is done, it, it could be very late in the day.
1: And of course, we're met daily with headlines around whether it's whether it's borders in Kent or other impacts that may be felt that perhaps just just bring this more to life and the reality of the fact that we're so close to that end of the transition period at the end of December. So. I'm sure I'm sure Sophie will be will be asking you to make time to come back on and, and keep our listeners updated on, on how that's going and, and what you're seeing. So Will, anything to add with respect to, to Brexit and, and all things that come with it?
2: As you know, Brexit is kind of a sideshow for capital markets. The UK economy is just simply not a prime mover of the world's stock and bond markets. It, it's actually not even the dominant force in the UK's stock and bond markets most of the time. Uh, the US economy matters more, somewhat bizarrely, most of the time. Besides which, uh, and so if you alluded to this, you know we've never claimed an edge in knowing where these negotiations end up, let alone trying to call the twists and turns most of the time, negotiating posture is just so hard to disentangle from kind of genuine red lines. So I think, you know, mm. whatever will be, will be. And I, I tend to sleep just a tiny bit better uh, if I don't think about it as much and leave that up to um, leave that up to Sophie.
1: Very good. So you're delegating, <laughs> delegating the sleepless nights, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. So <laughs> she I can wear it. Okay She's younger, do you, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so just turning to market land, um, we've seen, we've seen a pretty sort of Febrile, jumpy couple of weeks. If "jumpy" is a technical term, I'm not sure that 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 truly um, it is now. It is truly is. is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so well, what what's what's going on here? Can we expect more of the same? Is this just the way things are going to be as as we get to the end of what's been, frankly, a you know phenomenal and not for the right reasons, twenty twenty.
2: Yeah, there are a few more jitters about there. I mean, related to a couple of things this week, there are a a few more jitters uh, about the aftermath of the US elections, um, followed up following a fairly well covered press conference from President Trump. However, again, I think, you know, I think the thing to remember this is this sounds weird, again, but I think we've got to be careful about trying to link Too precisely incoming news with market moves. Um, That sounds a little bizarre when I say it like that, like I say, but what we've really got to try and work out always in markets uh, is whether already embedded market expectations about the future have changed as a result of incoming news flow. So with regards to the US elections, um, you can see that options markets, uh, options markets, I'm shortcutting here a bit, but these are markets that allow investors to target particular dates to buy or sell securities. That's a very bad description, but hopefully it gives some people an idea of what I'm talking about. But these markets have long pointed to jumpier times in capital markets uh, following the U.S. election. So investors are already have already slightly been girding up girding up their loins for a more challenging period here. Also, with regards to the news on the sort of you know the the more of a pandemic winter uh, that sort of investors have long been worried about. Again, commentators have been talking about this for a long time, and if you mm. look at how various assets have been moving under the surface um, of the various stock and bond indices around the world. Again, you can sort of work out just by looking at you know how cyclically or economically sensitive assets have been moving relative to less economically sensitive assets. Again, you can sort of try and reading those rooms, you can see that investors have been getting prepared too. The conclusion is like: be careful thinking you have an edge here. Remember how efficient markets are at pricing, and all that we, you know, no hope and, you know, importantly, fear about the future. You, you mostly don't have an edge, and actually, you know, as we've talked about before on this podcast, we have an in-house uh, investor sentiment indicator that's based on a load of kind of data points that we sort of feed into a machine that gives us a, a rough approximation of just how investors are pricing in that future. Are they depressed or are they too optimistic right now? that reading is very much glass half uh, half empty people actually are looking a little bit on the depressed side relative to um to where they were right at the beginning of the year not quite as depressed as they were back in uh, back at the beginning of march when we saw an opportunity to go in the opposite direction but actually you know there is not the sense that we're looking at an exuberant market uh, and remember the key point for long term investors all of this stuff should be below your eyeline. None of this really is likely to affect the primary driver of your investment returns over a five-year, 10-year view. That is, very simply, the, ingen- you know, the ingenuity and the inventive capacity of humankind. Are we going to invent new stuff, get better at using that new stuff? And is that, um, you know, those pro- productivity-enhancing innovations, they're going to flow through or should flow through to the owners of companies. Uh, and that's, you know, us as soon as we take the leap and decide to invest in a you know, diversified mix of capital markets assets.
1: Very well said, Will. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sophie, as well, for those those insights into all things Westminster and beyond. And we look forward to having you back again, because I think we'll definitely, definitely want to be hearing more from uh, from Sophie, as well as you, Will. Of course, we could never well, get it certainly have, beats me or... having
2: me comment on the political situation. <laughs> <I> think,
1: <probably. laughs> so thank you very much. And do please join us again next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator
0: of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.